Well, if you'd open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 1, we're going to begin our reading. If you're visiting with us today, let me introduce myself. My name is Greg, and I serve here as the lead pastor, and it's my pleasure to open up the word for you this morning. I was away last week down in St. George at a event for uh, the Seago Lilly Foundation, S-E-G-O, Lilly Foundation. It went really well down in St. George, and I appreciate your prayers uh, for that event, but it's good to be back and kind of had to hit the ground full speed running with all that's on the docket. So uh, let's pick up our reading in Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. We are beginning today our study through the book of Exodus, beginning that today. Today's the first sermon, and I intend for it to be an introductory sermon. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to know your mind this morning. Give us grace as we sort of take an overview of the book of Exodus. May it whet our appetite for the many, many different lessons you have for us to come. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, children, when I was a little boy, I lived in the Midwest, and I am very much an outside boy. I love to play outside. I love to play sports outside. And... Through the winter, I played a sport that was inside. The sport is called basketball. Many of you like to play it. Now, I would patiently play basketball or maybe even indoor soccer, but there was always a day. There was always a day of great anticipation that usually came at the end of March or early April. The sun would shine, and it would be warm, and the wind wouldn't blow. And the grass looked greener than it ever looked before. Now, the day after might not be so nice, but that day, that day promised summer was coming. And I would get outside, and I would play, and I would enjoy the day. And just like I got on Friday at the men's ski day, I would get a violent sunburn on that first sunny day of spring. But it was always worth it. I loved playing out in the sun. Well, if you're a Bible student and you love a playground, if you love to get out and run, Exodus is for you. The book of Exodus is a marvel for the many different fields of study that it touches. If you like Bible archaeology, well, then you've got the land of Egypt and all the treasures of Amenhotep III and King Tutankhamun, and you name it, 
You can get in and study the Egyptian pantheon and learn all about the things that God was trying to teach them through the plagues. If you love the study of ancient history, you will love the book of Exodus. If you love to read about miracles and marvels, if you love to study how God is the author and ruler of all of history, you will see natural wonders and phenomenon, and they're all with real places, real geography. So if you like tying your understanding of the Bible to geography and places and times, you will love the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is also rich, and I mean rich, in theology. In fact, many of us, when we read the book of Exodus, mistakenly think that the high point of the book comes when Israel crosses the Red Sea. And that, I will grant you, is a high point of the book. But the peak of the book, the absolute pinnacle that the entire book has been working toward, doesn't come until the final chapter. All along, God has been saying, I want my people to come out and worship me. The first half of the book is preparation for bringing the people out. The second half of the book is preparation for that worship. And then finally, in chapter 40, God dwells with his people and his people worship him. God is with man. God has come down and he's tabernacling with his people. And that's the culmination of the book of Exodus. If you love biblical theology, if you love to study the Bible's literature, you will love the book of Exodus. I say all that to prepare you, to sort of whet your appetite for what we'll have in all these lessons to come. But before we get into some of those lessons that I'd like to cover today, let's just talk about a few of the basics of this book. Okay, Exodus is the second book of your Bible. And Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that is the second book of the Pentateuch. And we know that Moses wrote not only the Pentateuch, but specifically this book of Exodus. And you can see in Exodus chapter 17, 14, or in Exodus chapter 24, 14, or I'm sorry, 24, 4, that God had set Moses aside to have a special job. And his job was to record all the events that were taking place through that time and as Israel had stopped along the way. Moses became the official, divinely inspired chronicler. He was the historian of these great events. Now, before I get too much farther along, it will become a theme as we work through the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, in many ways, serves as a case study for faith. If you don't want to believe the Bible, you will conclude that Moses did not write the books. If you don't want to believe the Bible, you will conclude that they didn't really cross the sea. If you don't want to believe the Bible, you will conclude that manna didn't really fall from heaven. There are points in this book to which history, although it doesn't contradict, cannot confirm. 
And as people interpret this book, you will either interpret through the eyes of faith and take this book at its word, or you will not. And so as we advance through these stories, your faith will be confronted. And believe it or not, we are confronted right away simply with who wrote the book. Exodus makes a claim that it was written by Moses, and so we're going to take it as such. And when Exodus makes claims, we're going to take them for what they're worth and believe them. That's how we're going to study the book of Exodus. The date that this book was written was 1446 B.C. Now, we don't know that from the book of Exodus, but we can count backward. Because in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, when Solomon dedicated the temple, it says right there that the dedication of the temple occurred in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. And we know that the temple was built in 986. So we simply add 480 years going the other way, B.C., and we come up with that date, 1446. And that is the date that conservative theologians will take for this book. Now, we also know that this book was written after Israel had spent 430 years in Egypt. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. This book is in many ways an end. It's an end of the exile. It's an end of slavery. It's an end of their sojourn. But in many other ways, it's a beginning. It's the beginning of a nation. It's the beginning of a relationship. It's the beginning of the tabernacle and the priesthood and eventually the temple. It's the beginning of the law and the beginning of peoples. And as we'll see later, that creation idea isn't lost on Moses. Next, what is the purpose of the book of Exodus? Exodus was written to demonstrate the nature and character of Yahweh. Now you'll read a lot of different purposes about this book. It's for worship, and indeed it is. This book is written for deliverance, and indeed it is. But the bottom line is, this book was written to teach us who God is. Early in the book, we'll cover this verse a little bit later, earlier in the book, in Exodus 5, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Yahweh says, let my people go. Does anybody remember how Pharaoh responded to that that statement? He said, who's Yahweh and why should I obey him? Well, the rest of the book answers that question. This is who Yahweh is. In fact, before Exodus chapter 3, these people did not have a name for their God as such. And Yahweh is a revelation of his name. This book is to demonstrate the nature and character of Yahweh, the Almighty, covenant-keeping Savior of his people. Exodus is about covenant-keeping, it's about saving, it's about a God and his people, how God relates to those people. And all of that flows out of who God is and what he does. And so our goal, our purpose will be to discover who this God is, how he works, how he loves his people, how he shows mercy to those who aren't his. And we will 
meet this God and we will worship him as a result. There are, I have one, two, three, four, five themes that will occur throughout the book that I'd like to cover now. Now we're going to be hitting these as the book goes, but I'd like for these theological themes to sort of interpret for us what we're going to be seeing in the coming weeks and months, okay? This will sort of help us read Exodus as we move forward. And I've got five of them. Um, Some commentators say there's eight, some say 13. You can really unfold about as many as you want to unfold because Exodus, as I said before, has such a variety of thought. I've reduced it to five. I think there are more, but for our purposes, these are the main ones, okay? So number one, Exodus is a book of covenant faithfulness. Exodus is a book of covenant faithfulness. The first thing I want you to do, everybody look at your Bibles at the first verse of the book of Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Now, I really want you to do this. I really want you to take out a pen, and I want you to add a word to your translations. You're not adding a word to the Bible because this is there in the original language. And it's actually a big deal. I don't know why translators leave it out. But the very first word of the book of Exodus is the word and. And. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. Now, this is such a common thing if you study Hebrew. It's, a very, it's, it's one of the very first verb forms that you learn as a student. It's so basic to the language that if you don't get this down, you, you don't really know the language. You can't know the language. What's rare about this is that this commonly happens. Like, like if, I were to say, if I were to say this, I'm going to the store and I'm going to buy a loaf of bread. Or I'm going to go home and eat lunch and take a nap. In fact, I think I'm definitely going to do both of those things. I'm going to finish this sermon and pray. Well, every one of those ands you heard is just a continuation of what went before, right? I'm going to the store and I'm going to buy a loaf of bread. And that's so common in Hebrew, it connects what's happening now with what happened before. What's rare is that books never begin this way, except for the book of Exodus. And every commentator notes this. What Moses was trying to do was tell you everything that went before in Genesis, what you read in Exodus is a direct continuation of it. Joseph went ahead to Egypt and his family came down with him. And these are the people that went down with him. Exodus is a perfect outflowing of Genesis. And you can't understand Exodus unless you understand Genesis. Now, I have to pick up the pace. This is a book of covenant faithfulness. The book begins with the word, and God says that he's going, he has made some promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he fully intends on keeping those promises. Let's keep reading. It says in chapter 2, verse 24, that God remembered that covenant. Is it that God 
had forgotten about his covenant and it suddenly popped back into his mind? No, that's not the case. What it means is, is that God began to recognize his covenant. God deliberately brought it to mind. It would be if I were to say, um, I remembered the second week of May that my wedding anniversary falls in the third week of May. It's not that I forgot about our wedding anniversary. I may have not so subtly programmed our garage code to be our anniversary date, so I would never forget it. No, it's that as the date approaches, I go, oh, I need to recognize that. I need to acknowledge it, organize a date, get some gifts, so on and so forth. I haven't forgotten it. It's that at that time, I'm choosing to remember it, acknowledge it, and push it forward. And so God says he remembered the covenant that he'd made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, uh, Moses tells them, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. In chapter 6, verse 4, God says, I established my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them the land of Canaan, and now it's time for me to send you there so that you can take it. God remembers that he'd made a covenant with his people, and now it's time to make good on his promise. And God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his word. And the book of Exodus, in many ways, is an extension of God's desire always to keep his word. The book also talks about additional covenants. God, as a extension of the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob makes another covenant with his people, the Mosaic covenant. And in 24-7, Moses took the covenant and read it uh, in the hearing of the people, and they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. They swear that they will keep this covenant, but, friends, no sooner had these people made the covenant that they broke it. Moses goes up onto the mountain. The man who delivered them from their slavery, the man who performed all these miracles in their sight, and you know what they said about him? They said, as for this guy, he means nothing to them anymore. As for this guy, whatever happened to him, we don't know. So they make a golden calf. And they have, the Bible describes, a scene of debauchery. God, God is angered over this, but God keeps his covenant even when his people don't. Even though we who are Christians, even though we have been delivered of our sins, we tend to act faithlessly toward God, don't we? And it seems that no matter how many times God comes through for us, we view him with suspicion and accuse him of evil motives. Maybe not out loud that our fears betray us. And God keeps his word. God remains faithful to his promises, even when we falter. And that's a theme that's played out many times in the book of Exodus, a book of covenant faithfulness. Number two, it's a book of divine description. 
we have this phrase, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. And that occurs 14 different times in the book. We're introduced to the divine name in Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I am, it's the Hebrew verb for to be. I am, it can be translated, I was, or I am, it can also be translated, I will be. He's the self-existent one, he's the timeless one. It's so complicated to understand that we come to the conclusion that God is the only one who's capable of defining himself. God is the only one capable of telling us who he really is. We don't ascend to heaven and study God and make determinations on God. No, God comes down to us and describes to us who he is. And so... Such is the case in Exodus. God explains himself to us. God shows himself to us. He shows us that he's the ruler over nature. I'd mentioned this before. Pharaoh, who worships the river god, Hopi, and who worships the sun god, Ra, who worships the god of death and the god of life and the god of fertility and a whole pantheon of gods, says, I've never heard of Yahweh. Who's he and why should I obey him? And then God, the self-existent one, Yahweh, begins to systematically show Pharaoh his superiority over his entire pantheon. You want to worship the sun? I can make the sun go out. You want to worship the Nile? I can make the Nile turn into blood. You want to worship the wind? I can carry in locusts. You want to worship the cows? I can take them out with a simple hailstorm. Does the firstborn have great significance to you? I can take those too. God shows his superiority not only over history but over nature. God shows that he is sovereign over people's hearts. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, God says, this is a crazy promise. He says to the Israelites, he says, I will give you favor in the Egyptians' eyes, and you will plunder them. After the plagues were over, The Egyptians couldn't get the Israelites away from them fast enough, and women were taking their jewelry off and throwing it at the Israelite women and saying, take it and go. Here's every valuable I possess. Please just go. And so God ruled over their hearts. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart after a long series of Pharaoh hardening his own heart. God rules over hearts. We're told that God is a consuming fire. In Exodus chapter 24, 17, he appears as a pillar of fire in the sky when the Israelites go to make the covenant with them. He cordons off the mountain, and when he appears with great rumblings and fires, the people fall down because they're afraid that they're going to die. 
And God says in chapter 34, verse 14, that he is jealously monotheistic. I, I alone exist. I, am, I alone am God. And I'm a jealous God. God. God cannot support the worshiping of things that are not. He cannot support the worshiping of things that are not. Think of it this way. Imagine... Imagine you, you had a, a friend, a married friend, who got sucked into a relationship online. And they never actually met that person. They're simply messaging relentlessly somebody through the internet. You would say to them, that's not real. You don't know who's on the other end of that. It's not real they're taking from you. You would feel jealousy for that person and their integrity. You would feel jealousy for their spouse. Because they're engaging in something that is fantasy and false. That's why God is so jealous about his existence. Giving your heart, yourselves, to anything other than me is false and fake. It's not really there. Don't go there. It's not real. And so God is jealous. Number three, Genesis is a book. I'm sorry, Exodus. I keep saying Genesis. Exodus is a book of recreation. Now, this is not something that I think I would have picked up on um, on my own. But every commentator that I read notes this is the case. In Exodus chapter 1, we're told that the people multiplied greatly, and the word, the Hebrew word, is swarmed. Does that remind you of anything? From Genesis 1, when God says that the animals swarmed all over the face of the earth, and he gives the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the land, and it says right here that God's people were fruitful and multiplied and filled the land. This is a, a recreation, not of a family, but of a people, a nation. Moses, when he was a baby, was put into an ark. It was put into a basket of reeds. Now, how many of you have always pictured this to be like a craft project of popsicle sticks and, and little pieces of wood and twigs, and you float this little like bird's nest basket down the river. How many of you thought of it that way? Believe it or not, the Hebrew word is box. It's an ark, a box. The same word that's used for Noah's ark. Same word. She made a box. Made of reeds, put it on the water, and floated it. And so this deliverer, just like Noah, was floated in an ark upon the waters. This nation passes through the water to emerge free. There's a covenant that's created and reaffirmed. Just as God created a covenant with Abraham and reaffirmed it with Isaac and Jacob. So God creates a new covenant with Moses a new-to-them covenant. 
in fulfillment of what he was doing with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he reaffirms it even when they're faithless. All through the book of Exodus, there are these recreation motifs that we'll see played out. Number four, the book of Exodus is a book of divine presence. Of divine presence. And this is actually something we cannot lose sight of. It's a profoundly important verse. It comes in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. And it says that God came down to deliver his people. All too often, there is a hard stop between us and God. We even, we even, we'll have little phrases like this in our vocabulary. We'll say, I I feel like my prayers are just hitting the ceiling. God is transcendent. He's out there and we're here and There seems to be this divide between us and him, but Exodus makes clear that when God sees the plight of his people, he doesn't sit detached away on his throne in some impersonal way, mediating out his judgments through his agents. No, God gets down in the dirt with his people. He comes down personally, to deliver. And one day, Jesus will become us and come down and deliver us from our sins. The Lord remains before his people both day and night. He's a pillar of cloud at night. He, he isn't that. It's a, it's, uh, it's a picture for the benefit of those people. He's using that form to communicate something about himself. But that thing that they see, that presentation of God is always before them. Smoke at night. I'm sorry, fire at night. Smoke during the day. And then as we talked about before, we read through the book of Exodus and we see it's, it's happening with such quick and fast-paced action. Moses is in front of Pharaoh and then the plagues come and then the people are on the move and, and they're, they're crossing the Red Sea and oh no, now they're out of food and now they're out of water and these motions and movements are coming so fast and then suddenly it appears that the brakes get thrown on, right? And we're talking about the meticulous detail that goes into crafting garments for priests and a box and handcrafted angels that sit on top and rings that go on the side so poles can go through and they can move it and curtains and... There's preparation being made, and it seems like the detail screeches to a halt. You go from reading an action-packed novel to a user's manual for a tool in your garage. Well, all of that is very deliberate and by design. Because God is communicating to his people, I will dwell with you. I will dwell among you. 
And God slows things down so that they take great care. So that they don't take for granted the joy of having God dwell not just out there somewhere, but with them and even in their little village. God is trying to communicate something about his presence. And our last theme, Exodus, is of course a book of great salvation. The word Exodus isn't the Hebrew um, name for the book. The Hebrew name for the book is the Hebrew word, these are the names, and these are the names, okay? Because those are the first words of the book. But when the Greek translators of the Old Testament in the third century BC went to make this, they gave it a title. And their title for the book was Deliverance, or Exodus, Departure, Deliverance. That was the word that they came up with, and it's been continued to this day. We can't read this book without seeing repeatedly how God saves his people from bondage. And there are times, especially early in the book, where God has to let the bondage get a little bit worse so that when the freedom comes, it stands in even greater contrast. God saves his people from starvation by delivering daily bread. For 40 years, they'll get daily manna. He saves them from starvation. God saves his people from thirst. We have this recorded at least twice, Exodus 15.25 and Exodus 17.1. The people are traveling through the Sahara, well, not through the Sahara, they're traveling through the uh, the, the southern parts of what is now Israel. And this is some of the driest sections of the world. And God brings them specifically to places where they're delivered from their thirst. He delivers to them water and saves them. God makes a path of atonement that delivers his people from their sins. Yes, he's delivered them from slavery. Yes, he's delivered them from hunger. Yes, he's delivered them from thirst. But there yet remains a greater need. Their sins have offended a high and holy God. And so God makes a way for them to have deliverance from those very sins. And what we learn is that the work of saving people from slavery is easier than the work of saving people from their sins. It's easier to get people out of the clutches of a world power than it is to turn the heart of a thankless, grumbling nation. Our internal problems pose the bigger threats. And when that internal sin issue raises its 
ugly head and the worst possible scene of Exodus 32 and the golden calf. God is angry and he wants to wipe them out. And through the intercessory prayers of Moses, God saves his people from his own burning anger. The book of Exodus is about salvation through and through. So what are we to conclude from this little introductory sermon? I want us to note that ultimately Exodus prepares us to meet Jesus. Ultimately, Exodus prepares us to meet Jesus, and that's why we're studying it. Exodus prepares us for the staggering claim that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. When we read what Yahweh does and how people act when they come face to face with Yahweh, we will be blown away that Jesus would say, before Abraham was, I am. And it gives depth and weight to that claim. Number two, Exodus pictures the tabernacling of God among God's people. Jesus promises the tabernacling of God in God's people through the spirit of the living God. We don't have to go anywhere to encounter God, for God comes down into our hearts through the Spirit of God. In the person of the Spirit of God, probably better said. We are the tabernacle of God. Every believer is indwelt. And what these people looked forward to with great anticipation and took such great care to ensure that all was right God does for every person who asks Jesus to save them from their sins. And I hope that this study will add depth and weight to the realization that the Spirit lives in you and all the consequences that that brings. And then third, all the Exodus law and repetition prepare us for Jesus whose sacrifice completes and finishes it all. The daily routine, the daily sacrifices, the slaughtering of animals, the splattering of blood, the carrying around of tents and tabernacles and curtains. It's complete. It's finished. And when the lamb... Passover was killed and slaughtered and burned and eaten. That's the picture of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. As one lamb on the Day of Atonement, which is a future book, is left alive and released. This is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Exodus prepares us to meet Jesus, who he is, what he does, and the finality of his sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace as we look ahead to study this book? May we find in it Christ. May we find Christ here. And I pray that you would be pleased to magnify him in our presence.
For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.